A lot has happened since 2011, and to connect us up with today's challenges, I'm including a few of Michael's words relevant to this time from a Humanity Rising broadcast last year. And I think it's uh, and what, what's called for is an awakening of the genius in as many people as possible, and then change happens, and no one's in charge, and no one's heroic, and an individual figures out what their life is about, and they do their work, com- you know, contributing to the positive things in their community and, and the things that help climate crisis and all that, but they're doing their work, and one day they come to an intersection that they didn't plan for, but people are in need of something, and they have been developing that thing, and they step into a bigger crossroads, and the thing that was their practice becomes something that benefits the community, and as that keeps happening, you get a change in systems and culture, similar to the change in systems in nature, and something happens that no one foresaw, or could predict, or could control, and then we are all somewhat in a more blessed state, and we see the value of the individual, and the individual sees the value of the community that includes the community of animals and trees. Welcome. This is William Evans, and we're shifting gears. Our guest today is Michael Mead, storyteller, drummer, mythologist, and author of Fate and Destiny, The Two Agreements of the Soul. Welcome, Michael. Good to talk to you, Will. Michael, a friend here in the Valley, Brooke LeVan, says the biggest barrier to sustainability is knowing who you are. Does that resonate with you? Well, I I certainly think it does, yeah. (laughs) It's a nice use of the word sustainability. It's become kind of a buzzword, and it's a little bit of a confusing uh, notion. Uh, I like creatability better, but um, but yeah, if if people aren't living uniquely their unique lives, uh, they can't be effective in the in the greatest way. And I know, you know, we have to be part of community. Uh, the individual serves community, but this, the community is supposed to serve the individual also, because it's like a, an exchange between the one and the many. And so we join certain groups and movements that we know are meaningful, but it's not enough to just be part of the movement. A person has to become their specific contribution to the mute, uh, movement, just the way no two trees are the same. They might be the same species, and they even grow in the same limited area, but you'll see the differences between the two. And so if we're going to sustain the forests, the individual trees have to be cared for, and if we're going to sustain the living forest of culture, the individual humans are going to have to be cultivated. And that creativity takes courage. Yeah, creativity always does. I mean, the hardest thing to do is to become oneself. And I'm sorry to say it, but there are a lot of energies going against becoming oneself. You know, when when a, uh, a child is small, no one knows who that child is supposed to be. It's set up that way. The parents actually don't know who the child's going to turn out to be. Now, since people no longer understand that each child comes in with its own genius, its own um, inspired soul, people tend to lay expectations on the children and hope that the children will become a certain thing for the benefit of the family. And that's typically what causes rebellion in youth, because the something instinctive in youth knows that they have to become themselves, not what other people expect. And again, like we were talking earlier, 
if the olders keep getting older but don't get wiser, there are not enough elders around uh, to be models for the young people. Um, the elders, you know, they, they say if you're looking for an elder, you're not looking for a normal person. <laughs> normal, <laughs> you're looking for the abnormal because normal people just remain normal people. Nothing happens. Um, the elders are weird. They're supposed to be weird. Um, they're supposed to be connected to the unseen world. And so, you know, I work with youth a lot, and it's really funny. They'll tell you, yeah, we like the weird old ones, you know, <laughs> the ones who are still dancing or, or trying to make music or, or doing something that's creative. And, uh, and I think what they're referring to is they're seeing something unique in certain older people, and just seeing that nourishes the uniqueness in them. Yes. Yeah, I remember when you said that years ago, and it was very helpful to me, particularly in relation to my own children, uh, who always considered me weird. There you go. That's one of the biggest compliments you can get. <laughs> yes. Now, there's a second quality to the elders that I, I, I talk about, write about, which is salt. The, um, an elder is supposed to be worth their salt. And people are supposed to become, you're talking about sustainability, people are supposed to become the salt of the earth. Um, and salt is the, you know, it's a preserving element, the preserving salts of the earth. Without too much salt, you know, you get hardening of the arteries. Not enough salt, and the blood doesn't flow at all. And so uh, we need salt, and part of what the elders are supposed to contribute to a culture is the salt of wisdom. And partially that means calling things for what they are. So, you know, nowadays you have this strangely narrow political fight going on. All they can think about uh, on one side is to say no new taxes, as if that was a curative for all the ills of the world. And on the other side, for whatever reasons, they begin to argue simply for uh, stimulus spending. And how would you say this? Elders are not an elected position. So what's missing is the uh, those who are old enough to know better who say, listen, there is no one answer for a complicated situation. And this is a, an extraordinary waste of time that indicates, in fact, that neither side knows what to do. And so we're in this kind of odd place where some salt is needed to give flavor back to life. Life is losing its flavor as everybody gets so scared and just tries to hold on to what they have kind of thing. It, life is losing its rasa, its salsa, its flavor. And uh, that flavor depends on salt, the salt of, you know, truth and the salt of, and the salt of wisdom. But we happen to have this huge horde of former baby boomers who are potential elder bloomers. And if instead of, I don't know, retiring, playing golf, uh, joining the Tea Party, and instead of those things, if the olders began to put some salt back into the culture, I think it could change things more quickly than almost anything else. Well, I think so, too. And then the youth would, would have someone who could honor their voice and their uniqueness. But I want to I go into this, Michael, from a foundation in your, your new book, Fate and Destiny, The Two Agreements of the Soul. Briefly, just tell us, what are those two agreements? I wanted to imagine what makes life totally fascinating 
when it's going the right way, completely compelling and full of grace and beauty, and what inhibits that. And so the idea is that before we're born, I use an African story, a West African story, uh, about the birth of the soul. And it, it talks about how before the soul comes into the world, it finds out what its gifts are and what the style of its life is going to be like. Not the exact story, but the rough plot line. And the soul enters birth in this world having its own knowledge of why it came. But on the way to being born, we forget what was seeded into the soul. And so what happens as soon as we're born is we're, we're an infant, and we don't know who we are or why we came. The family doesn't know who we are or why we came, regardless of what they think. And we need to survive. So in order to survive, we begin very early on to make agreements. We smile in a certain way because we notice it gets mom to feel closer to us. And, and then eventually we figure out how to get along with the members of the family. And then we figure out how to get along at school. And then we figure out how to get along at work. And, and I call all those getting along things the second agreements because they all come after and are secondary to the first agreement, which is the reason why we came to life to begin with. And then I, I suggest in the book, all second agreements are renegotiated, renegotiable. We can renegotiate with parents, with siblings, with bosses, with employees, with friends, with lovers, and with our own children to some degree. And we should renegotiate because our life is supposed to keep changing. But we cannot renegotiate our first agreement, which is the seed of destiny in our soul. We cannot renegotiate it. All we can do is live it or fail to live it. And so in the end, what's critical really are two things, I guess. One is, did we find the real destiny, the real aim of our life, our first agreement, and try to live it? We don't have to live it all the way and, and be wondrously successful. We just have to be in tune and in touch with it. And then secondarily, did we renegotiate enough uh, of the issues with those that we're close to so that we are not damaging them or ourselves too much? So you'd say we... We aim for being guided by our soul's primary agreement, but clever enough to survive and maintain our secondary agreements and renegotiate those in a confused and a sometimes violent world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, so I begin the book talking about how I encountered fate early in my own life, especially at the age of 13. But by the end of the book, I'm realizing that I have to say something about the responsibility now to the two worlds. So you have the world of spirit and great imagination, which is the place where our first agreement came from, and it's the place where our soul is aimed at. And then you have the world as we know it, the world, the green, great green garment of nature, and the multicolored fabric of culture. And I think we have a responsibility to become ourselves and then a responsibility to figure out how can we use that awakening and becoming for the benefit of both culture and nature. To me, that's exciting. To me, that makes life sizable. It makes imagination possible, and it makes you know the dream closer. Well, and I, I thought it was really important what you said that 
as elders and mentors, we have a responsibility because sometimes someone else needs to help unlock the mystery of another's life. Well, yeah, if a person has that kind of ability, it's interesting. Um, there's so much damage and brokenness in the world. Everybody knows about political brokenness. A lot of people know that ecology is now, you know, torn, it has holes in it, and so on, the ecological systems. And so you could say that there is, I know the unemployment rate is way too high, but no one should be unemployed, really, if you think about how much needs to be done in culture and how much needs to be done to assist nature to recover, so that it's really more about a person figuring out, what's my primary way? I know people who can walk in a forest and begin to explain what's going on. Um, I grew up in New York City. I can walk in a forest and be stunned by the mystery, but I have no idea what's going on. I'm more aligned and aimed at dealing with cultural things, like you were just referring to. And so there's people that are naturally, you know, healers and, and that kind of thing. And then there's people who know how to heal in the realm of nature. And the issue is really figuring out where each person is supposed to be working. There isn't going to be, near as I can tell, any single idea that's going to arise from ecology or from politics or from spirituality that's going to give everybody an idea what to do. It's really about the many imaginations, I think, awakening in all kinds of people and then people finding the way to contribute. That gives everybody less of a burden and it gives everything a greater possibility. If you watch nature, nature depends on diversity. Ultimately, so does culture. And nature is an interdependent, cooperative process. So if we each find our own inner compass, the potential of coming together cooperatively and in partnership with each other and with nature uh, just becomes unlimited. But as it is right now, uh, we just can't seem to get to first base with a renewable energy policy in this country. Well, you have a lot of things going on. I think I mentioned you have leaders that are not initiated into their own lives often. And you have people substituting ideological belief systems for real thinking and, and having one's own ideas. And, and then you have the problem that um, people who haven't found real meaning in their own life tend to interfere with those who are trying to find it. And so, you know, there, there's always a conflict involved somewhere. And one of the jobs that I think the elders might have is learning how to deal with the conflicts better, uh, learning how to accept, you know, the conflicts. I mean, we live in a world that is partly darkness and partly light. There's a suggestion that there is a contrary or contrasting energy in the world. And um, in America, which still has this fascination with innocence, it's as if the light is, is the only thing that's valued. It has to be bright and light and even white to be valued. And that's a completely naive point of view. One of the uh, phrases explaining wisdom, one of the old ideas about wisdom, was that it was dark knowledge. That is, say, knowledge has to do with brightness. Dark knowledge understands the shadow as well as the light. And strangely enough, all the light, all the light that's missing, all the bright ideas that are missing, you can't find them in the light. You can only find them in the darkness. And so again, 
with that, and a, a person might better avoid cynicism nowadays by taking on the idea that inside the trouble is the solution being sought, inside the fateful circumstance is the destiny hiding, inside the darkness is the missing light that shows everybody the way. Yeah, bringing back my shadow and learning from it and taking responsibility for it is a huge teacher. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, I've been part of the civil rights movement, peace movement, and a whole bunch of movements over the years. And one of the things I've had trouble with is the insistence that a particular movement is right, um, because that starts to make the other side wrong. That's the classic way of not moving forward. And so, you know, if you, if you walk in a forest, you see shadow and light. And so that tells me that the ecological movement has to have an awareness for what the value of darkness is as well as the value of light. And, um, and the earth itself is a dark place, should you go into it. And yet that's where the gold is hidden. And so there's this mysterious thing where simply claiming we're doing the right thing is not impressive to the earth, which would like a more earthly thing than just the right thing. Yeah, right and wrong are dangerous uh, dangerous territory right away. Well, they're the, they're the training wheels for understanding how life really moves. You know, so it's a good it's a good exercise to begin with because you find out what your own ideas are and then hopefully begin to find out what your own limits are. So those divisional things are usually the two training wheels. And then you're supposed to get to the point of being um I was just writing about this this morning. Homer called Ulysses or Odysseus many-minded. And one of the big things... He called him what, Michael? Many-minded. Odysseus was many-minded. Yeah, that's how he survived. That's why he's the one that made it back from the ill-fated war. Uh huh. And so, because he was many-minded, he could adjust to so many situations. And nowadays, people tend to be uh, single-minded about things. And, and just take a side, and you're expect, supposed to do that when they take a poll and all these kind of things. But to be creative and to be involved with really sustaining life, I think it's closer uh, to being many-minded if a person were going to be helpful. Oh, yeah. I One of my favorite definitions of health is health is proportional to the number of perceived options available. And when a, <laughs> an individual or a family or a culture loses options— they get caught in the corner, and they get desperate, and may go violent. Well, yeah, and of course, that's what's going on. Uh, the other thing I think that's really hurting everyone is the assumption that there's a limited amount of stuff, the belief, really, that there's a limited amount of stuff to go around. And this is what runs all of the economics nowadays, is um, supply and demand is how they talk about it, that there's a limited supply, and then you measure the demand, and there here goes the game. But that's such a narrow view. It's such a simple level view. In, you know, I'm a storyteller and a mythologist. And in mythology, they say there's always abundance if people are able to imagine it. And so we live under the rule of scarcity. It rules everything. And it really rules, rules the cultural dialogue right now. And, uh, and yet, uh, scarcity gets greater when people lose their imagination for how abundant life is. 
Yes, in the chaos are all the resources if we can still see the big picture. Well, yeah, and, and modern science is interesting that way, you know, because they came out with the idea of the uncertainty theory, and now everybody's living in uncertainty. And then there was chaos theory, and, and now everybody's really inhaling chaos. But yeah, inside chaos, chaos is an old Greek word that means the abyss. It doesn't mean disorder simply. It means the abyss, the big gaping uh, maw of nothing. And the opposite of chaos is cosmos, um, which means the implicate order. And so I remember James Joyce talking about the future that we now have inherited. He said, welcome to the chaosmos. Welcome to the period where chaos and cosmos are constantly interchanging and exchanging places. To be alive now is to not know what's coming next. I noticed in your book you used the phrase, I had a... I had to become what was seated in me, and then you suggested you often see this includes an appointment with trouble. It seems like we've all got an appointment with trouble now. Yeah. Um, I happen to be a fan of trouble, and partially because I tend to get in trouble, especially I did when I was younger. And then at some point I realized, well, if I'm going to be in trouble, why wouldn't I become proactive and begin to the trouble? And that's then what I call getting in the right trouble. And for some people, the right trouble is trying to save a river or trying to heal a forest. And for some people, the right trouble is actually stepping into politics but not getting caught in the back and forth of dull ideas but trying to do something meaningful. And for some people, the right trouble is trying to keep the doors of the temples of spirituality truly open. And I think it's... And anytime someone is doing something meaningful, they will find trouble. And eventually, I think we have to make friends a bit with trouble and realize that trouble is what pushes everybody to the deeper resources and to the creative levels of themselves. And once this awakening starts, it's a lifelong process. Well, I love the—I've been studying since since I was in my 20s. I've been studying initiation, the idea that there's an archetypal process through which a person keeps— Initiate means to step into. So through it, through a lifelong initiation, a person keeps stepping into a bigger version of their own life, keeps stepping into things that they really don't know about themselves. All knowledge uh, is gathered at the door of the unknown. And a person is supposed to still be doing that right up until they take their last breath. And in the old idea of human growth, the end of your initiation didn't come until you took your last breath, until the end was supposed to still be stepping further into our own lives. That's the idea I like, because it keeps me from thinking that getting older is simply going downhill or over the hill. The, uh, the old notion was that the elders, actually, as the body collapses, the elders become like their deep self begins to shine through all the cracks and broken parts of their bodies. And that's what gives the sense that there's something spiritual hidden inside. Would you be willing to share with us a little bit about what you're personally awakening to at, at this point in your life? <laughs> that's, a, that's a clever question. Um, getting a little older, I'm in, two of the things that I'm quite interested in are eros, the capacity to love, and the figuring out of what it is I really love, and that, that has to do with 
You know, I grow flowers now. I never did that before in my life. And I love growing flowers. I could stand and just watch them grow. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I never did that before. And I find it the most most fascinating. And so part of one's life is supposed to be growing the garden of beauty in one's life. And so for me, one of the things lately is flowers. And the other thing I found myself uh, indelibly attracted to is the ecstatic. In a culture where everything is getting narrower and narrower, and more and more conflicted, and people are getting more and more fearful and less and less fluid. You sometimes just have to get out of it. And ecstatic means to step out of the places you usually stand in and expose oneself to the the deep joy of life and the surprising spiritual qualities. Uh, Recently, I've done a couple of tours with... uh, Middle Eastern Ensemble, where I'm reading ecstatic poetry from Hafez and Rumi and telling stories while the band is playing. All right. I've been, yeah, I've been enjoying and indulging in uh, various aspects of the ecstatic. Wow. And so, Do you have any advice for people, Michael, about what you just did, showing us your gold? Oh, no. I, I, I'm not sure exactly what you mean. What, what I mean is that You've got the maturity and the stability and the clarity to take whatever people throw at you at this point in your life, or at least much better than a youth. And I say to a youth, don't show anybody, don't tell them what your heart said to you until you're, you're strong enough to really hold it in a confused culture where people may not bless you. Well, that's nice. I, I, I hear you're being protective of the inner gifts of young people, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Although, um, I think both the youth and the elders have to be a little reckless in order to pull things off. And um, so I don't know, what it's making me think about is this notion. There's an old idea that says the only people more committed to ideals than young people are the old folks, the elders. The difference is the elders are committed to the ideals without expecting them to come fully to fruition. Mm -hmm. And the young people think it's going to happen. It's going to all come. I remember in the 60s, you know, a lot of us thought we were going to change the world. And we did to some degree. But then those changes faded to a large degree as well. And so you get older and you realize, no, we're still going to do the great dance. We're still going to risk ourselves in certain kinds of circumstances. But... We understand now that it's not all going to change suddenly, and it all doesn't get better, that life is the constant dance and exchange between the gifts and the wounds, and the idea is to survive and keep inching towards a little bit more realization. Working, I work with youth a lot, and one of the things I try to do as soon as possible is help young people find out what their gold might be. That is worth many, many risks. I work with kids in the ghettos and the barrios. And I've had them say to me, you know, I feel quite a bit in danger now because I feel vulnerable for the first time in my life because I can feel something in myself that I didn't even know was there. And then I felt bad going, oh, wow, I've got them feeling vulnerable in dangerous circumstances in the hood, only to have them say, I'd rather die knowing what I know now than live having protected and covered up the gold I'm carrying. So there's lots of ways to deal with it. And it is a bit of a mystery, the fact that we're, we have some kind of gold in us. And, you know, when do we realize it and when are we ready to use it? It's a bit of a mystery. Thanks so much, Michael.